This is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1940, and we'll be talking about The Man Who Loved Children by Christina Stead. I have two guests for this conversation. Kay Austin Collins is back. He was on our General of the Dead Army episode and the Louise Glick episode. He is a film critic at Rolling Stone. And then we'll be also talking to John Lingan, the author of Homeland, and a new book about the band Credence Clearwater Revival called Song for Everyone, which is coming out this August. Um, so to summarize The Man Who Loved Children, it is the story of a large family. Um, it really focuses on three main characters. There's the father, Sam, who is an idealistic government worker with a lot of big ideas about the betterment of mankind, and is also destructive, egotistical, and completely unconnected to reality. Um, he more or less drives the family to a level of ruin that's almost too extreme to describe. We'll get to it in the conversation. His wife, Henny, fights him at every turn and complains relentlessly about how bad everything is. Uh, and then the third of these main characters is Louie, who's Sam's oldest daughter, um, Henny's stepdaughter. Um, she's a young teenager who both loves her father and also tries to get free of him in her mind. Um, it's part of the cleverness of the book that this is a dramatic conflict, showing how Sam and Louie each use language and the capacity for independent thought to kind of enact this battle between them. Um, we'll talk about that quite a lot. So, on to our conversation. Cam, you were the one who chose this book, and we have... This book chose me. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tell the story. Tell the story of how you came to this book, and then how you felt reading it. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, I, so it started, I mean, a few years ago, I went to the Melbourne Film Festival, and I met a film critic there who was a big reader and she very generously just sent me this care package of Australian um, novelists who weren't like Peter Carey, um, you know, people that I I hadn't, I'd maybe heard of. And, um, you know, and looking into those authors, it was like Elizabeth Harrower and Helen Garner and uh, Gerald Murnan and, and all these, uh, Patrick White, one of my weirdo favorites. And kind of the algorithm just kept pushing the man who loved children to me every time I looked into one of those novels as I was reading it. And it's just sort of one of those things, you know, where you kind of have a novel in the back of your head and then you kind of find a reference to a Jonathan Franzen essay about it. And then you learn that like Elizabeth Hardwick has an essay about it. And then there's this Randall Gerald like intro. So I just had to get it, but with very little sense of what I was getting myself into. I knew it was a family novel I knew that Christina said was fascinating, you know, a socialist, kind of a, a, an expat, all these things. I didn't really know what I was in for. And I think that's good because, first of all, I don't know that any description of this novel could really prepare me for the feeling that I had reading it, which is just, I mean, I was aghast the entire time, but also galvanized by, um, the peculiar precisions of her language, but also the excesses of her language. Um, Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that, just, that was an immediate impression. I was like, okay, we're, we're calling the husband a like, what is it? Jot paste subaltern bureaucrat. <laughs> like, like, all right. You know, um, I cannot place that string of words in anyone else's hands. And so I just immediately became super interested in her and in the fact of this novel and why I hadn't heard more about it, why it had to accumulate over a time like debris 
from you to find that people come back to the Marxism because I thought that the layer of her it's like there's this the first layer which is just the extremeness of the language and the extremeness of the situation and like the interpersonal stuff and then I think there's another layer underneath it which is like a Marxist analysis yeah of like the family but um John we just lucked into you being <laughs> the third person on this podcast because you happened to be reading it at the same time. How did you come to uh, come to be reading this book right at the same time? I did not have a um, an Australian benefactress, but otherwise, <laughs> it was very similar in the sense that I believe the first time I ever heard about this was from the rock critic Robert Christgau. And, you know, you don't even think of him necessarily as a literature first guy, but he has written repeatedly about this novel and has called it repeatedly one of the greatest novels or his favorite novel. And so anytime a writer that I appreciate uses that kind of language, it's like something goes in the to be read or like look for it in a used bookstore kind of thing and then very much like cam was saying it's just one of these books that just pops up that there it's like this for a bizarre number of people and uh randall gerald is the obvious one but uh franzen had that essay that that was just mentioned and then um yeah patrick white who is again also one of my just sort of like why is he not more well-known? Like I keep waiting for that uh, renaissance to happen, but he's amazing. And he has said that this is one of his favorite books. Uh, Joy Williams has written about it. Angela Carter has written about it. You know, like all these people who aren't necessarily, like some of them are my favorites, but just people who are like, you must stop and show respect for these people. Like these are obviously literary types uh and writers of the utmost uh honor and like the highest caliber who are all pointing to this and saying what a book indeed and then when i actually so it just for that reason i had a copy of it sitting around and it was just like okay i guess this is the time for that book i have you know i a, a small uh, because of Patrick White and maybe Shirley Hazard, like a like there, I do have like a sort of very, very, uh, you know, sort of skin deep interest in Australian literature. But what I found really interesting is how, you know, this does not fit into any of the silos that you want to put it in. You know, like the is it an American novel? Not really in a way like, you know, not in a way that I could recognize, although I have a personal connection to that because this all takes place in areas that I know extremely well, uh, from D.C. to Baltimore to Annapolis. I have family. I have lived in all these places. And it was crazy to read descriptions of these places and have them feel so just sort of accurate even though they were written 80 years ago by a person who i don't think lived here um, no. she was in new york when she wrote the novel well um, listeners, i just i just want to say something about this that she wrote it 
somewhat about her own childhood, about her own parents, um, which took place in Australia, but the American publishers told her she had to have that in the U.S., but she was living in the U.S. at that point, so she just transplanted her own childhood to Washington, D.C. area. But I agree with you that there is something that feels very American about it, even though a lot of the language Mm -hmm. is definitely not American, but there's like a political, like a way that um, the dad, Sam, sort of exists in this like his political consciousness feels like something that you could meet in America and I guess Australia also. Yeah. So I, I read the detail about her being compelled to change it to an American setting as well. Yeah. And that struck me in a couple ways. The first being like, wow, I can't believe she was like forced to do it and she did it. But also, like I said, she didn't have to go this hard. (laughs) She didn't have to choose this very specific mid-Atlantic milieu. And, you know, like if you've read, for example, a book like The Tree of Man by Patrick White that takes place, it's almost like 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 an American Western. It's a settlement story. It's very much about like people arrive and they create the town that they live in and that becomes its own legend you could easily do that in the southwest of america whereas for this book i don't know if she grew up in like a like a federal bureaucrat kind of thing in sydney or whatever and so she wanted to transplant that to dc but the fact is like she could have translated it a little bit more easily for herself and instead she went and like drew some incredible physical scenes of what Annapolis feels like and what Baltimore looks like and what this, I mean, there's, I, there is a description in this book of Baltimore, you know, that's way earlier than any version of that city that I know. And that I read it and was like, this is true now. Like how did this Australian woman from the early 20th century nail this city so correctly it was crazy so um that was my long-winded answer about how i got around to it but you know i I think like i had i i just want to echo cam's thing that like i thought because you look at it you go okay family novel australian novel whatever it might be and it is really nothing like those in a way and it's so intimately drawn there's there's almost like no air in it it's really i was just shocked by how uh funny and disorienting but also just like terrifying it was from the jump like it is terrifying terrifying it took me a long time to find it funny because it's so terrifying and i I actually want to come back to that for a second but the moment it became funny to me was actually just very close to the very closing image where uh, Louis, sorry, I'm just going to spoil everything. So Louis has tried to murder her parents, which at this point is just like, what took you so long? You're I know. you're 14, but you could have murdered them at 10. Like they have deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she tries to murder the parents. She only sort of succeeds in, you know, the, the um, mother, stepmother, Henny, the, the mother character, she um, drinks the poisoned tea on purpose and kills herself, which she's basically been also wanting to do for a long time. And um, uh, Louis, the daughter, tells the father, 
um, yeah, I wanted to murder you. And I basically did murder mom. Um, kind of want to go. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to hit the road. Like it's time for me to leave now. I'm 14 and I pretty much murder is the next step, you know? And, uh, and the, when the dad says like, oh, you've become confused. You need to leave school and spend even more time with me and I will clear your mind and tell you what you really think about everything. And I was like, oh, that is actually really funny. <laughs> it's like that was the moment when the degree of his narcissism hit me as humor as opposed to like just sort of throat-clenching um, claustrophobia, like just how his his like hunger for control was was very frightening also you know like this is how it hit me anyway um and uh the way that he is just like producing more children so that he can control them and tell them that he knows all their thoughts and demand love from them and speak to them in baby talk had the opposite Oh yeah, totally. that it seemed funny to me before the turn came like and it happened quickly but it wasn't like it started off as like oh my god this is just like a weird you know grand guinol kind of family tale and like his his belligerence you know was just sort of like homer simpson-ish until you really got to realize like oh the threats of suicide on behalf of his wife are like you know uh, she means it like she really is at her total wit's end here and the children are suffering and the family's going in the toilet and you know I mean, literally it's like the baby is significant yeah yeah the baby yeah. is literally eating poop yeah. i mean things are just yeah. like this is a uh child protective services situation, you know, more than anything else. Um, but I'm curious about camp saying that it sort of flew by because that was not yeah. my experience. <laughs> and I'm curious, like how, how it grabbed you and how it did that. You know what it was? It's, it's because I think, I think this is a big novel and it is baggy in some ways, but I think she has a really sharp sense of structure and I think the first two chapters about each parent, essentially, with, with um, you know, introductions of the many children and various relatives and the setting and a lot of, strangely, particularly for me in the, the opening chapter about Henny, um, this really keen sense of what she wanted before she married Sam. Um, why and how it didn't pan out and the gap between that, the life that she had imagined and the life that she got. Um, and then in the second chapter, Sam kind of walking home. I, I kind of imagine him as like the, you know, it's like this Disney character walking home, talking to the raccoon, um, you know, <laughs> you know, gee, the world is great. I'm curious about power though. Um and and coming home and seeing you know his wife strangle his daughter and then strangle herself and then sort of walk out you know sort of I think the word that Christina Stead uses is flounced out of the room. Um, I think that pairing of chapters was just sustained as a troubling 
um, but also energizing for me um, energy. I just, I just had to, you know, because there's this, there's this, it, she already in the beginning establishes so many of the dynamics, not only interpersonally, but also um, the sense of inside the home and outside the home. And the moment of Sam looking in and, and seeing his wife put her hands around his daughter's neck and the little insights about how he whistles and, and, you know, Louie hears him and she runs up to her room and he notices that she doesn't want to see him. Just those early details. Um, and, and the gap between each of the parents, the grotesqueness of the world as any sees it versus what is pretty clearly described and defined and, and troublingly so is this, this, lacquer of idealism that Sam kind of has. It just, all of it immediately is like, I can see what's happening, but I really don't know where we're going to go with this. And I think just the horror of it, but also the, the breadth of where it can go from what feels like a pretty clear dynamic in the beginning to me. Um, I mean, we find out so much in those opening chapters. We know who the favorite child is. We know uh, that, I mean, I think one of the great themes of this book is about the ugly duckling, yeah. um, you know, unattractiveness as a state of being. Um, the, all of that's there. Um, and I just have to know, I kind of know who I'm going, you know, I, I, I know from the opening chapters that Louie's going to be reading a lot, that she's going to have a literary sensitivity. Um, I know from the number of times that the kids talk about money that this is going to be a novel about money. And I just needed to see where that carried me. Um, I thought that the psychological warfare in those opening yeah. chapters, I, I think that, it, I don't know if it was quite in the opening chapters or not, where the dad is, it, it's like you were saying about like unattractiveness. It's like he's partly trying to establish that his older daughter is unattractive by calling his younger daughter little woomy, um, yeah. like for, because she's more womanly. Um, but then he's like waking her up while she's sleeping so that she will sort of, you know, like affirm him in whatever way, like say that she loves him or something. I, I don't remember the exact details, but it's like partly it's his aggression against the older daughter that is the reason that and the younger daughter keeps on trying to go back to sleep and saying, go away, stop bothering me. And he keeps on like shaking her and saying like little woomy. And it's like, oh my God, it's so upsetting. <laughs> It's like it's just skin crawling, don't, don't as you say. It's so, no, your absolute skin crawling is totally the word, and you're right that it does sort of set it up. It's kind of an operatic book in a way, and it does sort of those opening chapters are kind of like here's what we're dealing with, and it doesn't really develop so much as just like keep swarming around. Yeah. those themes you know it's like everything we learn just gets deepened so much you know more than sort of expanded but don't we also in those early chapters see henny out at lunch having an affair with her bureaucrat uh the sort of the the guy is sleeping around with a bunch of other bureaucrats wives and stuff and he is just an amazing character because mm. it's just great that there's like this you know, between he and the family members are the only sort of outside voices, but the family members aren't any kind of like, they're all just sort of trying to preserve their opinions of 
the people that they're related to, whereas this guy is just completely outside and he's awful. Like he's not a good person. <laughs> he's not a good person either. It's like you see, like we see you get these glimpses of like life outside this home. And it's that is also never like uh, oh look, these people are murdering themselves. It's more just sort of like look at this microcosm of a broader just sort of grossness among people, you know, is really the main thing that I got from this. Yeah, they were both very particular and also, you know, they, they like their economic interactions. It was kind of like, this is how the nuclear family works in a way. It's like, this is an exaggerated version, mm-hmm. but also like um, the, the economic interactions between all of the characters and their interdependence that very easily switches into destruction. It's not like these are uniquely bad people. It's like, this is the implication of everyone's nuclear family on some level. Um, and I was, yeah. I was interested to see that um, that Christina Stead's husband is a like Marxist professor. Was it? I don't, I don't remember the details. But when I read it, and I was reading the Randall Jarrell introduction, and I was thinking, wow, he got really different things from this book than I did. Like he read it really differently <laughs> than I did. Um, and I actually, that was one of the things about it, about the way the narration works that I frequently found myself wanting to find secondary sources to read about it because she doesn't give a lot of analysis. Like a lot of times it's like a, it's more of a third person, third person than most books, even, you know, it's like not a, it like Louis is the closest to a point of view, you know, close third kind of character but really most of the times things just happen and people say things. And I had this problem of remembering exactly what it was. Like I had this emotional response to what happened. I was like, but what did he actually say? Like, I remember it was terrible, but I don't remember what he actually said or like what, what exactly happened to cause, you know, this, that, and the other. And in a way it's like a, um, an amazing document of, memory and rage because it's like obviously the whole book is just seething with anger that her parents were allowed to be this kind of people you know that it's like clearly she's talking about specific people and she's clearly remembering like I need to write like a thousand pages of how what like horrible person my father was you know um but there's like this lack of analysis in the text that um and I was like, did did I did I just see what just happened? Like, did that really just happen? You know, like mm. the things she doesn't sort of give a narrative moment for things to settle, where you would kind of form a memory and um like people would have time to react. Do you know what I mean? Like Yeah. I mean, I think you're talking about what because for a novel that that feels you know, pretty straightforward. I I found myself rereading as I was reading in a way that, you know, when I do that with like Henry James or Toni Morrison, that's to be expected. You know, I I, I reread as I read it because I I know that something comprehensively just didn't land, and I they're so yeah because they're so smart. <laughs> and Christine said is like extremely smart, but I think the surface of the novel. Um, 
is sly about about its dramatic emphases and and something's sort of slide by without me having a moment where I have to self-correct and, and say, okay, I know I know that I just missed something. It'll come, yeah. it's like delayed in a way that doesn't really describe my typical experience with realism, but it's also not, you know, it, it's not uh it's not modernism in the way that I typically define that in terms of what my brain knows that it's going to have to do. Um, and and that really struck me because I, I think this is also just an elaboration on on one of your earlier questions. But another thing that kept me reading was like I was trying to decide, I was trying to make up my mind about the tone and about is it disdainful, um, you know, because it's grotesque for sure. Yeah. Um, but I I was really interested in the sympathies of that voice because it doesn't it it, it, it didn't announce itself in the ways that I expected. I really needed to finish the novel to understand where the author kind of emotionally was, you know, the perspective of the author emotionally engaging with the material because it immediately is so overwhelming and grotesque. And there's just, you know, there isn't like, these are all the children in one paragraph. It's like, oh, now there's a baby named Tommy. And this is like five pages after we met the, you know, it's, 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 building and building on itself and and the tone is making me sort of sneer but it's also making me sad and it's making me anxious um it's not quite like joyce carol Oates level anxiety like i read joyce carol Oates and i'm just like i need xanax these novels are why <laughs> like this narrative voice is why xanax exists to me like, joyce carol Oates mm-hmm. just makes me very anxious and this snuck up on me in that regard. Is, jo- is Oates more straightforward in her grotesquery? Because like one of the things, like this book is long, is really long, but unlike uh, a typical, you know, you brought up the modernists, we brought up Patrick White and these other, like, you know, we're talking about Toni Morrison. There's like mythic qualities to those kinds of things. And for a book that is 550 pages or whatever it's not mythic this is not like we're not being asked to accept these as like symbols for larger um you know statements about the cosmos or about sort of larger like statements about humankind like this is a book about these people and it is about these people like that is the point of it and the you're you're totally right that's a great way to put it of like wanting to finish just to understand like what is the ultimate judgment being rendered here like, yeah what is the purpose of this you know like we're being put through a lot and <laughs> you know it's like it, it's a lot especially to i did not find it a, a total page turner until about the last hundred pages when the when yeah. the thing flipped so far that i was like we are we could be in outer space by the end of this thing. This is just yeah. so off the wall with the level of uh, anxiety in the characters, with the level of suffering among these people, that they are just like steamrolling towards financial ruin. So at least one of them is desperate to die, and another one is desperate to kill other members of the family. It just seems really bad, but up until then, it was just sort of like, what, 
besides just the kind of like the 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 fury the cloud building of it like what are we doing here um and it's for that reason it's a really hard book to excerpt like i don't know what i would read to give people like here's a flavor of what it is like the whole point is that this stuff just keeps snowballing and snowballing but i did have one thing to read because i think oh sure yeah like because i love it when when people get into this but this is like i'm bringing this up because it's so this is not what i think of when i think of this book but the fact is that she makes the time for this kind of thing is so strange and like because it is about these people you do get strange like you say like the narration of it whether it's first person whether it's intimate whether it's a sort of a godlike frame you just it oh it's always in flux and so we don't get a lot of like straight dream sequences or anything but we do one time i think and i can't for the life of me determine whether this is even important at all to the book but it's just here and this is like you know close to halfway through as the end of the end of chapter one or the end of part one and chapter six so all the kids are going to bed and like evie capers away with her hair wild and clenched dark face and she was the dark face and she was tossing asleep too ernie was awake uh calculating what they would get tomorrow and as for louie in a few minutes, she had entirely forgotten the five hundred dollars. So this is after the five hundred dollars, like sort of appears in the family, I think, from whatever reason. But there's this like excitement about what they're going to get there, and so she finds herself, quote, lying on her back. She was halfway to sleep, thinking dizzily, quote, "I thought it was a horseman, and it's only the blood beating through my temples when I lie down. It was a horseman." riding up and down and wampum purple strings of shells fimbriate horsemane shell and a tenidium deep deep down in this dusty red tenidium is like the frills and gilled animals i learned like right. in, uh, like mollusks or something <laughs> she woke up with the start trying to remember the beautiful thoughts she had been having and tried to thread back but could not She fell asleep, really, and woke up shrieking, dreaming another old nightmare that she often tried to describe to them. Hard, soft, hard, soft. A dream without sight or name, which her hands dreamed by themselves, swelling and shriveling, hard, soft. She turned on her side, and the friendly horseman, she still thought of him riding, though he was now only a phantom, lulled her to sleep with his kerberak. So it's like... What is that? What are we even talking about? Suddenly she's like falling to sleep, imagining a horseman that is related to these like bizarre scientific, you know, like zoological terms. And then she ends it with this like sound effect that I've never heard. Curper, I guess that's like a clopping of horsemen's hooves or something like that. You know, yeah. but it's like here is just this one little insight into a character on the edge of sleep and right as like a nightmare begins. And it exists so far as I can tell only just to sort of give us a portrait of her. 
that like even her sleep is sort of like halfway invaded by nightmares and these sort of visions of a dark horseman, which could be her dad or it could be poverty or it could be anything else. But I just loved that because, like I said, this is almost halfway through the book and like nothing like this had occurred before. And I love a book where there's always this sort of like reinvention happening of what the what the narration is, what the point of view is. And we never return to that. It's it's not like the dream life of these characters becomes important from then on. It's just it's, a sort of new introduction, new wrinkle in the in the portrait of Louis. I think that the portrait of Louis's mind as being the place where she's gonna establish her rebellion against Sam. I think that her having like a texture of consciousness at all or mastery of words because Sam's um, his like locus of control has so much to do with like baby talk and telling people that he knows what they think and he knows what they should think. Mm -hmm. He knows that they're um, and like his idealism has this other side where he, you know, eventually says like, and I think that nine tenths of people on this planet should be gassed. Uh, which is like bold words in 1940, you know, um, that that he wants right. everyone to die. He thinks that everyone is disgusting. And um, he has this like really hideous eugenic understanding of the world. Um, but that that that's like one step below the surface and the surface is... Um, that he he has this idealism like that he thinks everything should be better and everyone just kind of like airy not quite connected to reality like he's like not never quite making eye contact with what he's saying um but like a lot of it has to do with how he uses language he's like constantly twisting language and using people's words against them and i think the fact that louis as the book continues as she ages increasingly is using words and like code language and secret language and reading and um, quoting poems that the dad doesn't know, like that just having a consciousness and a texture of consciousness that doesn't belong to him mm. is like really rebellious in, in context. That's yeah. um, kind yeah. of a dream. And I think that's, that's sort of where I placed that quote that you, but it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a scene the way the scene is where she like writes a play. Right. Yeah, that that is like the, the core Henry James era. What you're describing of turning to drama. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so one thing that I wanted to say about it is um, it reminded me of um, Elena Ferrante. Like if you look at um, Henny, the mom character, and then Louis, the daughter, if. Christina said herself was born in 1902. Um, the generation, like as the book continues, there's more of this idea like, oh, well, Louis is so unattractive. She'll have a job. Um, and obviously that's, you know, they all have feelings about this idea of a woman having a job. Um, but that's really not a possibility for Henny. And I think that there's, there's something similar to the way that the two characters in the uh, Ferrante, like Neapolitan Quartet, like one of them goes and the other one stays. One of them gets a job, the other one, I guess, gets a different kind of job. But, you know, that that there's a um, there's like two paths carved out um, from the same starting point. And I have this feeling about this book that it's also describing 
the degree of degradation and destruction that is um, that is not having the opportunity of having an external job, like that she has a financial obligation for all these children. She has no way of controlling how many children she has. Her husband rapes her in order to produce more children that will, you know, give him an ego boost when he's feeling down. Um, Like her only access to money is asking people for favors and possibly like pawning stuff from her childhood when she was richer and she can't make her husband get a job once he no longer has a job, but she's still responsible for all the children. And when she doesn't, when she like leaves for, what is it like a weekend, they're eating like raw bacon and poop and rocks. (laughs) So terrible. It's so terrible. My favorite meal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you can see that like from the beginning of the book, like one of the things that's propelling the plot is that Henny is actually trying to do different things. Like she's trying to send children to live with relatives. She's trying to ask, you know, she's waiting for her inheritance. She's trying this. She's trying that. She's trying everything that's available to her until she's like going to these like very sleazy loan sharks. And she's, um, she's so far in over her head, but none of the forces that are putting her in that position are things that she has any control over. And she uh, is blamed for it. Like after she dies, they're like, Oh, well you married a rich girl. And so she must've just liked spending money. And it's like, well, the only thing she spent money on essentially was keeping the children alive you know without even liking the children no because she never <laughs> it's like again, she couldn't even choose how many children yeah. she had it's like none of it yeah. was in her control yeah and but then they're like oh they i feel so bad for you sam because you had this garbage wife um now you can you know we'll be nice to you and help you and support you but they have no sympathy for her when she's in that position and they only have sympathy for sam when he's like oh well, now you're a single dad because your wife killed herself and it's like by the time she kills herself it's like very obvious that there's nothing else she could do. And the only thing that she could do during that whole trip to the grave is to complain about it. And they're like, she has complaining as her personality. Like, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, and this is something that when I finished the novel, I reread the first chapter because what I remembered by the end of the novel was that in the first chapter, she describes the home as a prison. Yeah. You know, and she, I mean, the, the dynamic that you're talking about, first of all, is one of the sharpest and, and most enduring for me judgments of this novel. It's it's Henny's position. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is when I when I reread the beginning, it's not as if she's like it's it's not so straightforward as saying she's without agency from from you know, it's it's not just about agency. Not that that's not like a, a pressing question. Like it, it, you know, it's a question at a lot of at the heart of a lot of really great literature. It's one of the things that you know that is really resonant about the Awakening for me, for example. But I don't reread the first chapter and think any without agency because she has such a keen perspective on the world and she has such a language for the world. She does think it's vile and rotten. These are words that she loves. Um, and she does, and she does kind of see this blackness and this 
and 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 this whatever it is in the world. But that also, when we're first learning about this family and we're learning about what divide what 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 distinguishes mother from father in this family. Ultimately, yes, her outlook on the world is grim, but it is also interesting. Like yeah. the world is more interesting through her eyes. And I think that's something that I get from the children as well, at least when we first encounter them, is that, you know, they're kind of all on the spectrum between father and mother to some degree in terms of worldview and behavior in the world. But there is something to the fact that she doesn't take them out often, but when she does, they see the world as she does. Like, this is something that sticks out when I kind of revisit the beginning. Um, and, and it's, it's, it, 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 it's an interesting complexity and an interesting wrinkle in this novel for me, because it is this state of, of lacking agency, but she is so seething. Yeah. And this is a novel in which the psychological warfare is so rooted in language from, from Louis to Sam and, and the, you know, the kind of his fluency of dialects. He's like, it's like a John Berryman poem (laughs) (laughs) meets, you know, meets, meets Disney cartoon to me, but he like, it's, it's, it's language that he, that he works in. And it's, it's a kind of beautiful to me that Louis is a is literary that her sensibilities are literary because that is a way out. But Henny's got language too, and it's 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 this re- these repeated adjectives in which basically everything is disgusting. But she even has respect for kind of you know like I'm remembering like there's a mouse right? Am I am I dreaming that? No, there, there's there's like the pregnant there's like a quick paragraph. This is one of those things that I had to reread as I was reading it because it kind of almost kind of escaped me as I was reading it the first time that, you know, the pregnant mouse that she's disgusted by, but she can respect a girl trying to get by, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, it's like this disgusting, she can smell like the filth and all these things, but, and this domain of the house is a prison, but her ability to conjure that in this, in this third person language that nevertheless is vested with the sentiment of the worldview of the people that it's describing as it's describing them, it it's kind of flows between them and her just, it's, I, I get to Sam and he speaks and I just see a black and white world. I see, I see kind of poles. I see narcissism. I see a kind of delusion, but I look at her and her lens in the world is colorful to me. It's yeah. disgusting. Well, she's telling it's, the truth. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just kind of seeing. Yeah, it's vibrant. It's like this X-ray vision, and it, it it does result in this. Like, if you just sort of take the things she says aloud and compile them, it, she's like Livia Soprano. She's just like kvetching all the time. But it's there's a there's a kind of power in that. It's not power power. She's still kind of pregnant all the time. They have so many kids. They have so little money. It's so disturbing. Yeah. But it's so front loaded by that. It's, you know, it's it's remarkable to me. I she comes off very centered and just her anger is 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 it just leaps off the page. I comparing the two of them, yeah, I agree that we do see the world more through her eyes. We don't really see things through him. We right. observe him in his milieu. For example, when he's traveling as a scientist and talking about like to his 
to his uh, like his carriers or whoever, his his minders who were there, like I think he, like the Asian guy, and he's making all these grand pronouncements about like white scientific men bringing all this, and it literally stops to say like you know they were rolling their eyes as he was going off. So like that's what we see. We see yeah. him like in his world. And like you said, he's black and white. He's literally a taxonomist. You know, he's literally yeah. breaking things out. And what he, he teaches them sort of biological language, which is beautiful in its own way. But it is not a sensual appreciation in the way that um, Henny does have that. Like, she, even though it's maybe sensual appreciation is the wrong way to put it, but she doesn't, she does have a sensual relationship to her surroundings. She does. And and, and an emotional relationship to her. I mean, obviously very emotional, but you know, her response to feeling miserable is to say, I can't take this anymore. I am in spiritual agony and cannot continue. And his is, well, we'll just have another kid and I think things will work. And that's, that's not a way to look at the world. That's not a, that's not an outlook. That's not a, just a, you know, that's delusion. Yeah. Given that if, you know, the, the uh, real family that this is based on, um, Christina Stead is the stepdaughter of the mother character. Um, It's really a very loving portrait of this woman who used relentless complaining as a way of like kind of showing the like showing strength or beauty of the world like you were saying it's like she has like this engagement with the world that comes from saying i am at the absolute end of my rope i cannot take it anymore but she's telling the truth about what's happening and um the dad is just so awful and that was what was um so interesting to me about um oh actually i wanted to correct something i said earlier which is that there are women with jobs in this and obviously there is the possibility of getting a job but it's only doing other kind of domestic work it's there's no way of achieving bourgeoisness through we also have to acknowledge too that there is a there's like an original sin component to their relationship by virtue of how it started you know like it's it was born under a bad sign as it were you know she was uh this is like a final fall from grace as a you know baltimore debutante and you know for him it's like, I've got to find a woman, any woman will do to help because I have a girl and a girl needs a, and needs a female uh, presence. And towards the end of the book, both of them, when, you know, confronted by Louie, neither one of them has like a legitimate reason why they're married in the first place, you know? And so, yeah, I agree with you about how her, she does feel stuck and it's not just, you know, I'm in a bad relationship it's like she has a few options and the doors have closed to her you know it's like a person coming from her background yeah can't become a domestic you know that's just like that's a, a well a but even if she did, almost or, yeah like i don't think she could make that leap or accept that and 
I also don't think that it's her fault for being brought so low that she is in a position where that is even up to her or something that she could do. And she couldn't do with all the kids around. To she couldn't like, I, right. I don't think it would make her life or the kids' lives any better if she no. had a domestic job, like in somebody else's house. It's like, she's already, she's already there. It's kind of like the house of mirth where it's like, yeah, there are technically maybe other paths she could have taken, but are there really? And you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but she does try, you know, and that's part of like the feeling of agency and the feeling of the plot in the book is that she is trying to resist this kind of like black hole husband that's just like sucking all the light out of the universe. But that was my impression of it. But that was not Randall Gerald's impression of it. Like, did you read what he wrote about? Yeah, that? yeah. I, I was, and I, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. Um, I'm so curious about uh, what you felt were the differences between his reading. And your reading? Um, I just think that he found Sam to be a lot more sympathetic than I did. Mm. Um, I think that he thought that the that the parents were more balanced in terms of which one was causing the problem. You know, that it was like people who hate each other and are fighting all the time and are married and have all these children who are watching them fight. Um, and I think he found... Um, like from, from what I read, I think he found Henny really interesting as a character, like much like we did. But I think that he didn't find, um, I, don't, I don't think he found Sam to be as like skin crawlingly awful as mm. like, I found Sam to be like, as, like the, the result of decades of simmering rage on the part of the author like yeah to be able to write a character like that i think you seem to have the the hardest uh or the deepest feeling in that direction of most secondary sources though i mean i'm not disagreeing with you i think mm. the title of the book indicts him like yeah and you you realize that as it goes on especially that like oh he's the man who loves children or the yeah like what what good is that but even in those other essays like you know franzen's or joy williams or whatever it does tend to be described as a book about a sort of nightmarishly dysfunctional family rather than a book about a tyrannical despotic man you know and mm. i do think that um you know, this might be cheap to say, I kind of feel like that's an amazing part of the book is that it's like with all of these incredible emotions and images just piled up on top of one another, that there's still ways for people to read this and come away like, well, I think there's some wiggle room or there's, you know, we can, we can discuss, you know, like, what parts are funny versus what parts are actually a nightmare, you know, what, you know, like, cause I'm sure there are things in our, all of our minds that are like this crossed the line. This is when it became a totally awful, like, can't like, I, I just picking up this book today, sort of re refresh my mind a little bit. I could feel like my, my fists clenching again or whatever, <laughs> like <you> know, <laughs> just stepping back into that world. But again, I'm laughing about it. Like, it's that balance that makes it, you know, 
just amazing. And, and I do think that like, it depends on where you find those breaking point moments yeah. that is going to be, that's, that that's going to, you know, change your interpretation of like, whether like, who's the monster, who's, who's being indicted, um, whether or not this is a feminist book or something like yeah, that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't use that term for it necessarily, but um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that the, um, it, it, um, it reminded me of uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, which is another book that we did um, for Lit Century, but that one is, um, it's written later, slightly later, but it's another like progressive idealist family with a ton of kids and a dad who's just like full of plans and knows how everyone ought to do everything. And some of the anecdotes read as funny and some of them to our modern sensibilities are kind of like, you're saying this like it's funny, but that's horrifying. Like right. your father gave the 12 children a lamb and the children like literally tore it to pieces, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing where you're like, that's not that funny. That's really yeah. awful, you know? Um, but it's, it's interesting that this is coming out of this political era where like a man with a plan who wants to have a million kids and sort of show everyone how it's done is a type, you know, mm-hmm. and that that's a type that, um, I don't know, kind of like, you know, the Duggars or John and Kate plus eight. I think we probably talked about this in the cheaper by the dozen. It's like that people know what those families look like when the children are young. And then when some people grow up and then write a book about it, um, I'm sure that we'll get some like Instagram moms, children, you know, like in 20 years, they'll be writing tell-alls, like what it was like to be the child of an Instagram mom. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, it feels like there's, there's an indictment of um, some of those like progressive ideals and the the flip side of the progressive ideals is he literally wants to kill nine out of 10 people that he, you know, that it's like he has all these ideals about how he wants to improve everyone's lives. And he also hates everyone and wants to kill them. That those two things are two sides of the political movement that she's talking about. Um, But sorry, that's slightly a tangent. I agree with you that the book can be read many ways and that was part of what I was thinking about the way that the narration is not that close to any particular perspective. There really is a lot of room to interpret what happens in different yeah. ways. Yeah, I think I think in, in what I've read, the through line, and this is something that I, you know, as I was reading the the Gerald essay, you know, he he singles out Louis. I think, and I think instinctively, if if there's one shared response between myself and, and a few friends who read the book and, and the things that I've read. Um, we certainly all put our finger on that particular character. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I, you know, I, I do think that I, I do think that there is, it's kind of hard to see, I would say, but this empathy for Henny, um, imaginatively just the length that the novel goes to, to imagine her 
and to imagine what she imagines um, is something that I think not everyone will notice perhaps about this book because she is so miserable and it is so object that it can be kind of hard to really see the beauty, I think, of that as a portrait of that woman. Um, but, you know, I, man, you know, ultimately I'm not rooting for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and also I think I have to, you know, in all the things that I sort of skimmed before I read it, this does not start off as a novel and doesn't feel like a novel to me that is going to wind up in the terrain that it does. It takes me like, like with murder and suicide, it takes me a minute to sort of, or poop. Like it, 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 it takes a minute before I really kind of see that as part of the trajectory. But then when I get to that, what's interesting to me is that it, and this is something else that I think Gerald is kind of getting at that it, for all the excesses, there is something plausible and and implausible but there's a plausibility um within the scope of the world that that's being crafted here that takes me aback when i think about it and that's pretty breathtaking i think about this novel that i even hesitate to mention murder or suicide or poop because well you know john i'm thinking about when you listed out some of the people that led you to this novel i'm thinking about like angela carter um and largesse and grotesqueness and also i just angela is such an energetic stylist um who has really perceptive ideas about interpersonal um pressures but who i think i go to because there's a sense of um you know there's there's a like there's there's fantasy there's there's beyond reality there's magic yeah, yeah whimsy, exactly. Magic. Yeah. Yeah. And I see now that you mention it, like that's I think what I when I talk about Sam as like a Disney character, that's sort of what I'm thinking of. Or I mean, my first impression of any even, I, I immediately, you know, Christina said couldn't have known this, but I thought of like the the grandmother character and spirited away, Miyazaki spirited away with a huge head yeah. and the huge eyes and the and the kind of, you know, the the textured skin and all these things something that's really emphasized but in particular her eyes and the closing of her eyes and the bird likeness that the grandmother in that movie has a bird form yeah. <laughs> i guess you'd call it um you know there's like this beyond reality uh in the description and the perception but i'm reading the novel and i'm like this yeah this family this family's adding up to me, given the, the social pressures and the monetary pressures and historically for women in particular, what was possible or not, or talked about or not. Um, it within that domain feels plausible, but I need to imagine cartoons to those are, those are the people that come to mind and Livia Soprano, but, but those are the people that come to, to mind when I'm thinking about the novel. And it's such an odd but just remarkable tension to me, this, this like realism of the social dynamics, but like a kind of, you know, I think about the naturalist, I thought about Frank Norris a lot and, and like, I don't think she's nearly as deterministic, but there is this caricature and, and filling it in with flesh and blood um, that really just, you know, this is for me, like what a novel can do. 
it, you know? yeah, the, it lacks whimsy, but you're in the, in the sense of you're not going to have, uh, uh, a woman have sex with a wolf man or whatever you're going <laughs> to get from the famous Angela Carter stuff. But like you do, I forget how you put it, but you were saying it was the, the idea of plausibility because obviously at various times, this goes way past the plausible into just the full on nightmare. But as a book, it really does feel ground. Yeah. It feels grounded because like, yeah, we like when they, you get vivid long descriptions of the house and the second house they move into, you get long descriptions of like how each of them grew up in like their family line and, you know, all the kids and how their relationship came together. And, you know, you sit, for pages at a time, like in real time, getting a, like a family, like the kids performing a play. Yeah. Like you really are put in the house with these people. You really are. And like, I would never think of it in terms of the naturalists, but I get why you're saying that just because it is a very grounded book. And even like emotionally, it's heightened, but we're really talking about elemental stuff. These are not yeah. difficult emotions to grasp. We're talking about, you know, marital dismay, um, you know, so, you know, just like this kind of untreated psychological torture that these people are going through, you know, before medication or talk therapy and the same, like, you know, couldn't you could, help these people. <laughs> well, yeah, perhaps yeah. not. Before, no. let's say, let's say before no fault divorce, you know, yeah. like maybe that <laughs> would be a, would be a better divorce uh, and breakup pills. Yes, I think, I think that's like the only thing that could help them. You know. But it all like the um, the outcomes and the sensations are all off the charts. But the baseline, just what they are contending with is like, how are we going to pay the bills? How yeah. are we going to feed the kids? How are we going to keep ourselves in this house? How am I going to have my job, uh, you know, after this? And then eventually they get into uh, infidelity and like, you know, your kids are growing up beyond your control, which even if like you're not, uh, you know, a, a potentially genocidal lunatic, that's a, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's a big thing to come through to come to as a life event is like watching your children evolve a sense of self and, 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 and see it expand beyond what you've taught them. Um, so yeah, I think it is. It's a really natural book. I I actually have right in front of me now. This is what what Angela Carter wrote about Christina Stead, and this oh, yeah. is not oh, great. particularly about this book, but I think it definitely um, holds true. And she says, "Stead is certainly not a writer of naturalism nor of social realism." And if her novels are read as novels about our lives rather than about the circumstances that shape our lives, they are bound to disappoint because the naturalist or high bourgeois mode works within the works within the convention that there exists such a thing as private life. In these private lives, actions are informed by certain innate inner freedoms, and however stringent the pressures upon the individual, there is always a little margin of autonomy which could be called the self. 
For Stead, however, private life is itself a socially determined fiction. The self is a mere fetus of autonomy, which may or may not prove viable. And inner freedom, far from being an innate quality, is a precariously held intellectual position that may be achieved only at the cost of enormous struggle, often against the very grain of what we take to be human feeling, which... That's really good analysis. Yeah. Well, first of all... Smart. Yeah, smart. I mean, Angela Carter, that's for another day. Like, yeah, she's... <laughs> a grand dame as far as i'm concerned yeah but yeah she really guessed and that was very true of how i felt about this book is that it's less about like i mean clearly it's about what these people are going through but it really is about people just like being ground to dust by yeah. the things that they can't do anything about um i think that's a good definitely any is the is the poster child because she is the most ground down she has the least agency and you know, I think at least, you know, Louis can be, she can sort of self-actualize at the end by leaving, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, uh, what's his name? The, the father can, can have his own like victory of like victory and tragedy of a kind, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. and Henny, Henny has victory and tragedy too. She achieves she gets out of the situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Francis and says that's a happy ending. I don't know that it is, but you know, it's close. Something that the, you know, it's like the, the, the balloon pops at the yeah. end, which like, thank God if it hadn't popped somehow, if it had ended 20 yeah. pages earlier, then what do you do? You know, but, um, so at least it had that going for it. <laughs> as, as an ending well, and there's you know. no off-ramp for sam either like yeah as right. you're saying it's like it's most extreme in henny's case and the way that everyone in the society sort of immediately blames her and erases and they're just like oh well she was just a bad woman to begin with and that's why your life was bad and um but then you know by writing the book christina is sort of setting the record straight and i'm just like well she wasn't a bad woman and she was complaining because everything she said was true. Um, but Sam also, like once Sam, it's like he doesn't have a lot of money coming up and he sort of has these grand dreams and they work for a while and he does get this job and he does get the sort of the family and the um, the rich wife uh, or the wife from a rich family. Um, but like once things start snowballing out of control for him, he also doesn't have an off ramp and he thinks yeah, like he thinks true. he's doing the right thing. Like he's like, well, I'm faithful to my wife. And it's like, you're, you're being told that everything you're doing is the right thing. It's like you have a lot of children and you're dreaming big and you, it's like, you're fulfilling this role that society has given you of like what a man looks like in this circumstance and for a while it works. And then once it stops working, like he's also in free fall and there's no Fully. way for him to sort of pull up before, yeah. as you say, like the whole thing pops. And he doesn't want her to leave. Like he no. loses it. Right. You know, he does, you know, take it on the chin to the degree that he's self-aware enough to recognize it, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, and he believes that he does love his children. Like he thinks that what he's giving them is love and not torture. But right. again, like he there isn't really a model of what he's told like how a father should be that isn't that. It's like that you're supposed to sort of control what your children learn at school and stuff. You're supposed to meet their friends and stuff like all the things he's doing sort of on the surface seem um, not just defensible, but like good parenting. All right. That's our episode on the man who loved children. Thank you so much to Cam and John and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next month. <laughs>